tonight on Arena. We're in the retro future world of Hello Tomorrow, while in film reviews we have an Ant-Man and Marcel the Shell with shoes on. can text us on 51551 or tweet at RTE Arena. Tonight in our film reviews, we look at four new films with the help of Diane Negra and John Maguire. Marcel the Shell with Shoes On is a stop motion cartoon about a snail who slithers into the hearts of America through a viral video. The Son, the second in a trilogy by Florian Zeller. It follows the acclaimed Father, which was Anthony Hopkins won an Oscar for when he got Best Actor Award in 2021. Atomic Hope is a documentary on a group of advocates for nuclear energy. You might remember Sean spoke to the director, Frankie Fenton, on Monday. And finally, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, the latest Marvel action movie. All that to come this evening. But let's begin with Marcel the shell with shoes on. Marcel is a one inch long seashell with one large eye and a pair of orange shoes. He lives with his granny, Connie, in an Airbnb house rented by a filmmaker who becomes fascinated by Marcel and films his life. John, describe Marcel to us and what happened in his life at the beginning of the film. I think you've described him very well. Like you say, Kay, he's an inch tall. He's some kind of life form. I don't know if he's a shell. He lives in a shell and he's got one eye and the little shoes. And uh, like you say, he lives with his grandmother, who's voiced by Isabella Rossellini. Marcel himself is voiced by Jenny Slate, who's also co-wrote the script here. And it's a very clever and very... Uh, intuitive blend of of live action footage. Kind of surprisingly so, isn't it? Stop motion. Yeah, it's not it's not an animation, mm-hmm. uh, but it has elements of animation, and particularly the stop motion. It's directed by a guy called Dean Fleischer Camp, and uh, like you say, he checks into this Airbnb after separating from his wife, only to find Marcel and Connie are already living there. Uh, and they, they're like the borrowers, if you remember the borrowers. They live off the remnants of what humans leave behind. So Marcel's car is a little tennis ball and they've made little houses out of, you know, lollipop stinks, sticks and bits of string and that kind of thing. And they live very happy lives. Yes, they he's like a bit garden. of lint as a pet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he has a bit of lint as a pet. Yeah, And it's... It all I know, as I'm describing it, Kay, this all sounds awfully cutesy mm-hmm. and horribly sentimental and twee, and it's not that at all. Uh, it's it's, but but to get to the point, the story there has been a tragic misunderstanding and a separation. Marcel and Connie have been removed from their community, and they've they've remained in the house, and everybody else of their species is gone. So it's up to Fleischer Camp to reunite them by using YouTube and social media and then the news media to bring attention to Marcel's plight and have everybody come back together. It's a simple story, but it's so lovely. So that's a good cue for this clip. Here, Marcel and Dean explain to Connie why Dean is filming him. I just brought a You making what? A documentary. Oh, it's like a movie, but nobody has any lines and nobody even knows what it is while they're making it. No. That's uh, sort of a way to put it, yeah. No, I just am making a little video portrait. About Marcel? A, yeah. A document, a film? Uh, yeah. It's like the truth, kind of. It's a movie. And it's the truth about Marcel. I mean, I hope so. I guess you could really spin it and make me look like a total. So this is your garden out here. 
So as John says, it could be twee, but in the voice there of Ginny Slater's Marcel and Dean Fleischmann-Camp, who plays uh, Dean, the filmmaker, and Isabella Rossellini plays Connie, the grandmother. And she lives in the garage. That's why she has the, the foreign accent. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may sound, I thought at the beginning, oh my God, this is so twee, how am I going to get through it? And then all of a sudden he kind of grabs hold of your heart, doesn't he? I had the same concern as John. As this movie begins, I thought, oh, God help us. It's going to be a bunch of self-help bromides. And, I, I you know, your radar would really be tuned to this kind of twee stuff. It's it's not the kind of material that, that I would be excited about going to see. And then, and, and then I will say the movie starts off a little bit in that register. And Mar- when Marcel says things like, I like myself, I thought, oh, no, we're going down a certain path. But it doesn't. And, and I think where the film does wind up it, it is in a much more trenchant register and and its concerns the film's concerns are ultimately with things like community and loss and how you map your way in the world and there's no way that you can watch this film in my opinion in 2023 with its kind of miniaturized focus on the little details and textures of things around us without thinking of how we live during lockdown Right. So this kind of sense that there's some kind of connection going on in this movie, whether it's creatively conscious or not, I really don't care. But I I think the fact that it becomes then a a fiction which offers us a way of recapturing that structure of feeling of of the time in which we recently were living makes the film even more powerful. So as John explained, there has been a separation. Marcel and Connie are left, but their whole uh, family and all their people have been taken away in a plastic bag in the separation of the last people who were in the house. So then Dean steps in and Dean has his own issues. Yeah, I think he's diagnosed at one point by by um, Isabella Rossellini's mollusk as a kind of a, a heartbroken man. And so one of the ways in which Fleischer Camp and, and Jenny Slade, who, uh, at one time a couple now broken up, have talked about this film is that it, it's actually a kind of commentary on his uh, emotional reaction to their breakup. And that's very much built into the film uh, in a way that I didn't find in any way cloying or forced. It, it felt very natural. Okay, there's an interesting one that shows that more, uh, how deep the film gets. In here, uh, Marcel is intrigued as to why Dean's dog is in a cage and he gets upset at knowing so little about Dean. What's he being charged with? What? Is he going to the jail? <laughs> no. Oh. Oh, you. I'm, I'm going to take him to my thought... wife's house. Uh, you. What? Well, we got separated recently, so that's what I'm saying. I'm looking for a new place. That's why I'm here. Why wouldn't you tell me this? Uh, I don't know. I didn't think to. Okay. I told you so much. I, so but I'm making a movie about you. I'm not making a movie about me. But you're also here. And I was sharing. You didn't also think to share? And then you're just no, pointing that around. I do think about it. It's not... Why do you, do you always need to be filming? No. <clears throat> I think I'd be glad I have it, though. We have it. Mm-hmm. A Dean Fletcher Camp there as Dean and Jenny Slate playing Marcel's voice. I think you both liked it. Stars yeah, from you, John. Much, yeah. uh, well, it's how he, Marcel, this little creature, translates human behaviour into his own language. 
how he clarifies our experiences for us as much as for himself. And as the story develops, it transforms into this kind of examination of loss and loneliness and grief, but also a kind of survivor's guilt and that, that kind of muddling on those kind of things that we have to do. And I really enjoyed it. Uh, I would give it four stars. It, it told me really that gentleness is not the same as weakness and the truth doesn't always have to be shouted. Uh, and I, I really took a lot from it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's lovely. For you, Diane, stars out of five. I also give it four stars and, and for an, an additional reason, which is that Hollywood peddles a lot of movies to intergenerational audiences and some of these movies are really weak. This is an example of, of a film that can be watched with pleasure and, and a sense of meaning by both children and adults and that really stands out in a kind of crowded marketplace where a lot of films claim to offer this, but I think Mar- Marcel genuinely does. Mm. So four out of five from... Um, for for Marcel, the shell with shoes on from John and Diane. Next up for review is The Son by Florian Zeller. The Father by Zeller was Zeller's adaptation of one of his own plays and the first in the trilogy. It brought us inside the head of a man suffering from dementia and looked at the impact the disease had on his loved ones. The Son is the second in the trilogy with the mother yet to be adapted. Diane, the son in question is Nicholas, son of separated parents played by Hugh Jackman, who plays Peter and Laura Dern, who plays Kate. Nicholas isn't coping well with the separation. No, indeed. And and I think, you know, one way to understand this movie is as a multi-generational paternal melodrama. It's trying to capture a moment, particularly in the life of this boy's father, uh, played by Hugh Jackman, of course, in which everything seems to be going perfectly for him. He's sort of master of the universe businessman. He's in a happy second marriage. They have a young baby son. But when Nicholas begins to manifest these, these mental health problems, his first wife, played by Laura Dern, of course, has been she, she's she's willing to try anything, including having the boy move in um, with his father and his second wife. So one of the things that seems really clear to me about the son is it has hold of a very timely subject matter, which is the the youth mental health crisis. Now, what it does with that is another question. But but the film presents itself as having a great cast and incredibly um, timely concerns. Okay, well, let's listen to a scene. Uh, this is set in a restaurant. The first time in years that Peter, Hugh Jackman and Kate, his ex-wife, Laura Dern, properly sit down and they're coming to terms with what's happened to their son, Nicholas. I feel like a complete failure. What are you talking about? Kate, you're not a failure in any way. Sorry. It's just I never imagined he'd leave home. You know, I mean, he's the one who asked me. Yes, the problem started with me. Of course it didn't. Yes. He doesn't want to live with me anymore. I'm calling. He doesn't even pick up. Now, John, we know that Nicholas has skipped school. We know mm. that he's self-harming. Do we, do, we, do we get beyond, does he blame all his troubles on the separation of his parents? He doesn't really blame anybody. He's a child, the young actor, uh, I think it's uh, Zen McGrath. Is the That's right, actor's yes. name. He doesn't get enough dialogue to go around to blame anybody. He's really a silent presence almost in this film. And it's not a bad perform not an actively bad performance from a young actor but he just doesn't really get an awful lot to do sit around and mope that's like Diane said this is a really a very important issue youth mental health and uh, suicidal ideation and then when he does actually self-harm 
Uh, these, these are all very important themes and very weighty material, but they, there isn't enough of a dramatic bedrock for him to do the things that he does. So we're told that he keeps a knife under his mattress and he has access to a gun. But it's like Chekhov's gun, unfortunately, and that when, once we're told about it, we know it's going to be used. And, uh, and, and instead know, of fi- once he does harm himself and he goes into an inpatient mm-hmm. treatment facility, once he gets out and they try to get on with their lives... Uh, then the film starts to fall apart, unfortunately, and becomes a collection of deeply illogical, even within the, it, the its own rules, the rules it has established for itself as a story. It becomes a bit of a mess and it starts to fade away very quickly. And Anthony Hopkins is in this film yeah. as Peter's father. So there is the two father and son relationships. And it, what is the purpose of that? Does Is it yeah. the one mirrors the other or one contrasts? with the other. I think part of the purpose of that is that the Jackman protagonist is realizing that his deficiencies in parenting his son stem from the way in which he was parented. But I would say at another level, this points toward the film's ultimate problem, which is it's not interested in the teenage boy sufficiently. And yet he's supposed to be the narrative, you know, focus. So that presents a problem it cannot recover from. Okay, well, let's listen to the few, uh, you know, insights we have into Nicholas. Here he he and Hugh Jackman have a tete-a-tete about what it is is wrong with Nicholas. Nicholas, I can't help you if you won't tell me anything. What were you doing all those days? Where'd you go? I walked. You walked? On your own? Yeah. But why, Nicholas? I mean, you think that's acceptable? And with your SATs coming up as well? You realize the school is talking about expelling you. Your mother's at the end of a rope, you know that? She wants to send you to boarding school. Is that what you want? No. So you have to do something. You can't just... Let things go like this. I can't deal with any of it. What makes you say that? Has has something happened at school? No. Or outside of school? Come on, we can talk to one another, you know? Just, it's, it's not that. It's... Yes? I don't know how to describe it. Just tell me in your own words. It's life. It's weighing me down. What is it about life that isn't working for you? I don't know. I want something to change, but I don't know what. As uh, McGrath as Nicholas and Hugh Jackman there as Peter in the sun. I mean, people don't often know what it is is weighing them well, down. It can be incredibly difficult to express yourself, but in that clip that you've just shown, Jackman asks eight questions in a row. The dialogue is literally interrogatory. He's just trying, and that's a real problem. Dramatically, when you're trying to watch a, a young actor express a character and he's barraged by question mm-hmm. after question. But does and that he isn't show given that, uh, any the material in- to re- respond with? But does that question how, how you know, the, the lacking the skills that Jackman is lacking or the Jackman's character is lacking? Precisely it does. And this is really a story about the vital importance of being present in your children's life and lives. And Zeller does occasionally give us a sense of that relentless impact of mental illness on caregivers, how a sick family member, uh, particularly a child, can sap your strength like nothing else. But after two hours of deeply unadventurous storytelling, the film's whole dramatic energy is derived from a twist. Obviously, I'm not going to give it away, but it's such an outrageous cheat on the audience that have sat through this 
But and also on the material itself, it's such a cheat that the whole thing just becomes completely superficial and manipulative, and you feel like you've been manipulated, and that's not a good feeling to have when you're watching a film yeah, that I you're being you, pushed into a corner. I think you agree it was a wasted opportunity about a subject that's so important and 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 current. I think it's really clear that that all this rich subject matter and these very strong actors are misused here, and and you can see early on that the film is going to push all this in an unconvincing direction. And I knew I was watching a film that was starting to go off the rails early in the movie when the teenage son, Jackman and Dern, all in separate locations, all have, I guess it's like a psychic connection where the oh, son... Like a psychic twitch of yeah, some kind. Yeah, some yes. kind of moment that we're, we're meant to understand connects the three of them as they all briefly ruminate on the son's unhappiness. It does not work. It's really awkward and clumsy. The film that I thought about more than once as I watched The Sun was actually Ordinary People from 1980, directed by Robert Redford, which is about the, the psychological distress of, of a teen son in a middle-class family. And that's a film that really genuinely wrestles with why he is so he is so despondent. This is a film that is is really strangely not interested in, mm. in the character at its centre. Stars out of five, Diane, for you. Oh, I'm afraid I'm afraid one. One out of five. And John? Yeah, it's considerably less than the sum of its parts. Uh, okay, so I would say two. Two, two Ooh, I liked uh, Hopkins' appearance. Mm. I wasn't expecting it, and he's really great. Well, I mean, the, the, right, that one scene is really superb and shows what could hap- have happened. Uh, if there was a steadier script. and There's and one other thing that Hopkins' do. appearance does, and it may sound trivial, but I actually don't think it is, is the movie has this beautiful aesthetic coolness that's anchored in its use of the colour blue. Yeah. And I actually think Hopkins' blue eyes matter in that one sense. Uh, but but I actually I completely agree. It's, yeah, otherwise, he's, he's, it's That's okay. what the extra star is for, Hopkins. <laughs> yes, and his eyes. Yes. So Atomic Hope follows a group of people who, at the start of the 21st century, began to publicly advocate for nuclear energy. They believe that nuclear energy is the fastest way to decarbonise our energy system in time to combat climate change. Atomic Hope is the story of their controversial perspective on nuclear power. Diane, this documentary follows this panel of pro-nuclear advocates. Who are those activists and where did they come from? So it's a mixed group of scientists and other kind of lay members of the public. And they're basically trying to, to, to show, or or let me put it this way, they're trying to to put into practice different engagement strategies to, to garner the attention of, of a rather indifferent public. We don't see them making their case particularly forcefully. Their efforts are entirely well-meaning from what I can see. But, but the, the film starts with the premise that we live in a popular culture that for decades has saturated us with various dangerous, with the idea that, that nuclear power is, is, is incredibly hazardous and they have whipped uh, the public into a state of fear about this and Atomic Hope is designed to take the opposite view. It's an advocacy documentary and to, to make the case for the, the, the benefits of, of nuclear power and to push back against what the film sees as its uh, over-demonization. Yes, John, because when Frankie Fenton talked to Sean mm. on Monday, you know, and Sean questioned him about why it was it so one-sided and he was quite unapologetic. He said the other side have had their say. It's time, you know, and he just was interested in exploring what was the nuclear argument. Yeah, it is a good argument, uh, I believe. And in an era when fossil fuel emissions must be drastically reduced with pressing urgency and, and a growing awareness of the crisis, 
faced by the planet warming and nuclear energy offering this alternate source of power, oil, coal, gas that continue to make up more than 80% of the world's current energy supply. Solar and wind can only do so much. Nuclear can fill a void. And that's an argument worth listening to, I believe. But the idea that nuclear power is a disaster waiting to happen, like Diane says, is so deeply embedded in the culture from Chernobyl to Fukushima. And in my mind, from um, of my age, associated with weapons of war and the nuclear threat that we had in the 1980s and the threads and the day after and all those kind of films. Uh, so these campaigning scientists and energy specialists have an uphill battle and that's what Fenton follows for almost a decade he follows them around all over the world Japan uh, they're in Australia uh, they're in the US obviously in Switzerland and there's this kind of loose alliance trying to win over a sceptical public who believe, like I say, that nuclear power is dangerous. So so one of the issues is, of course, Chernobyl. And here in this clip, Professor Jerry Thomas, she's a professor of molecular pathology at Imperial College London and director of the Chernobyl Tissue Bank. Here she speaks about the studies into cancer that happened in the years following the Chernobyl accident. So I'm professor of molecular pathology at Imperial College London and director of the Chernobyl Tissue Bank. I've spent most of my academic career looking at the after-effects of the Chernobyl accident with colleagues in Ukraine, Belarus and Russia. When Chernobyl happened, most of us who were involved in that sort of research generally expected the worst. Everybody expected there to be a general increase in cancer. They expected increases in leukaemia. Those just have not occurred. And the studies have been very rigorous. So that's Professor Jerry Thomas there from Frankie Fenton's documentary Atomic Hope. So did it um, perturb you that there was only one side of the argument in this, Diane? I think it is right to say that this film gives very short shrift to oppositional views. It's going down one path. Um, it, it also has another problem, I think, that we've just briefly touched on, which is by the time the film was released and being circulated, Ukraine had happened. And we are now vividly aware in a new way of, of the of nuclear capacity as a tool of war. And there's no way you can watch this movie without thinking about this. So I don't think that's the fault of the filmmaker so much as it is just a, a kind of an unlucky accident of timing. But it also leads to the to the sense that we're watching a particularly partisan uh, piece of, of, of cinema. And yet, I, I don't want to understate, I, I, I share with John the, the kind of sense that, that, you know, at the heart of this movie is a strong belief that decarbonizing our energy systems is such an urgent goal that we do have to maybe rethink about, you know, can reconsider how we classify nuclear power but the film for me did not make enough compelling arguments in that direction. Mm. Compelling enough arguments for you John? I think it's fascinating to watch a film like this in an era and in, in an era excuse me of scientific scepticism where everybody with a social media account is an expert scientist and all the recent noise about coronavirus vaccines and mask wearing and all the rest of that has proved that point and science has an issue of trust and while we waste time rebutting the often spurious and ill-formed objections of people, the planet is burning. So, you know, the, Fenton is in between a rock and a hard place. Is there time to give the counter argument? No, there isn't, because this is that's not what the film is trying to do. And I think it's quite an elegant film and, and an attempt to personalise the argument. But I found myself wanting more in terms of hard science around such a crucial issue. And I realised... Fenton's span here and indeed the span of the problem is global but I'd love to have had some discussion about the Carinsore Point uh, nuclear reactor which was proposed in the late 1970s in Ireland mm -hmm. and what that might have done yes. had we built it and what it might have done to the Irish energy landscape uh, it would, would have made an interesting case study Star and I think it's a conversation that's worth having very much so 
Stars out of five from you, John. Three. I was a little bit, I was a little, I wasn't as convinced as I wanted to be. Diane. I think three. I mean, what happens with this movie, which is kind of interesting, is that it winds up showing us how hard it is to make the public case for nuclear power because it can't do so effectively. Now, the finally to the latest Marvel blockbuster, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Oh, do we have Huntermania. Because, John, you decided <laughs> to go and see it. Diane had the I good grace wisely, to stay away. Wisely, had something else to do. So this is the third in the Ant-Man trilogy starring yeah. Paul Rudd. When I mentioned Paul Rudd upstairs, suddenly everybody was interested. Well, I like Paul Rudd too, yeah. yeah. Nobody dislikes nobody Paul Rudd. Nobody dislikes Paul Rudd. You uh, Paul Rudd as Ant-Man. He's and Ant-Man. This is his Marvel character. And forever, we go into every Marvel blockbuster as we go into every film with an open mind. I think this is the 26th. I might have lost count there. And we expect to see something new and we come out of it, every one of these films, with the same sense of disappointment. These are not satisfying cinematic experiences anymore, if they ever truly were, but an endlessly recycled collection of ticks and characters and interchangeable heroes and familiar action beats, recognisable tones. They even all have the same colour scheme. And yes, it is vibrantly coloured. Yes, it is technically dazzling once they go into what they call the quantum realm, the world beneath us at an atomic level. Uh, but it's resoundingly empty inside once they get there. Is it they humorous? They really have nothing to do. Well, this is the thing. Ant-Man is Marvel in comedy mode and this is their funny character. And yeah, there are a couple of jokes in it and a few decent gags, mostly focused on Rudd, it has to be said, because he he has extraordinary comic timing and he does get a, a few good reaction gags. But... I don't know if it's enough to classify it as a comedy. I did enjoy the character design of the many alien species that they encounter once they do go back into the quantum realm. There's particularly a kind of a pink amorphous blob with wiggly arms who's a really good sci-fi character. And that kind of sci- 70s sci-fi, sci-fi paperback novels would be the visual inspiration here. Those kind of garish, lurid uh, colours of weird cr- creatures and monsters. And that's great. That I'm absolutely OK with all of that. But in the middle of all of that, you have to have something happen. There has to be a story. There has to be a film. And all we get here is another villain who will apparently go on to become the major villain in so-called Phase 5 of the Marvel Uh, juggernaut Uh, and his name is Khan the Conqueror and he's ably played by Jonathan Majors with only a hint of Thanos Josh Brolin's Thanos Uh, uh, but what we want is something to happen and there isn't anything except this I don't feel you're going to give it an awful lot of stars are you John? there's two stars here and both of those are for that 70s sci-fi paperback cover so ignore the ant go for the shell (laughs) very nice game (laughs) Diane Negra And John McGuire, thank you very much. You're listening to Thursday Night's Arena. Two of Cork's most established actors, Fionula Linehan and Catherine Mahan Buckley, will star in a new production of Declan Hassett's play Sisters, opening at the Cork Arts Theatre next month. This is not the first time the play has been performed in Cork, as Sisters had its world premiere in The Everyman in 2005. Then it starred the late Anna Manahan and it went on to play the Edinburgh Festival and had a long run off-Broadway in New York, for which Anna Manahan was nominated for a 
Tony. Sisters looks at the relationship between two sisters, Mary and Martha, in the 1950s in rural Ireland and how they have vastly different perspectives on their childhood and adult experiences. Playwright Declan Hassett joins me now from our Cork studio. Declan, nice to talk to you. Evening care and your listeners. Uh, can you tell us about the origins of the play? As I said, you wrote it especially for the late Anna Manahan as a one-woman play. How did that, How did come about? Well, I often think that imagination is something of a ploughed field and you never know when the seed has been set. But in fact, when I attend Mass with my parents uh, growing up in the 40s, uh, I'd hear the story of Martha and Mary. And I really had a great grow for Martha because she was left out in the kitchen rattling the pots and pans. And poor Mary, Mary then had the, the chosen role sitting at our Lord's feet and basically waiting to be fed. That's so, true. I, th- I don't think there's a woman in Ireland who's stuck in the kitchen who doesn't imagine herself as Martha. Uh, exactly, yeah. And I, I really felt then, in my I collided with my t- teenage years in the 50s and it was still with me. And so uh, uh, our paths crossed, Adam Adlin and mine, crossed when I was art editor of the Irish Examiner and she was... Uh, not quite at the height of her powers then because she had semi-retired to Walford City and she was uh, very happy to do so. But along came Martin McDonough and wrote uh, Beauty Queen of really that and uh, Anna gets the Tony uh, and her whole life changed. But one day she asked me just outside her house in I think Lombard Street would I help with the biography? And I said I didn't think so because I was very busy as well. And in a weak moment, I turned at the gate and said, uh, i write a play for you. Now, the only problem with a uh, minimal lady like Anna, if you make a promise, you, you keep it. And uh, on the following Monday, I was at my desk and uh, Anna was on the phone wondering had I started. <laughs> It's good to have that kind of pressure, maybe a bit too much pressure. Well, I I need it because I'm a bit of a procrastinator. So can you tell us a little bit about this Martha and Mary? As I said, they come from very different perspectives in their about their own nuclear family, their relationship with their father and mother. And then that grows even further into their uh, teenage relationship. Yes, yeah. Uh, This particular restructured play, that's how I would put Pat Talbot's treatment as director of it. It has Martha and Mary on stage for the entire 87 minutes. Previously, with Jerry McLaughlin, Michael Toomey directing, and Michael Scott directed Anna Manahan, they would appear and tell their own story after, before and after the interval. But I'm very excited about this because I saw the first rehearsal and it really kind of it, it, there, there was a dynamic about it. Now Martha was beloved of her father Very but we, so. we 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 listened to Martha talking about her father and what we're hearing as an audience is very different to really what she's telling us. Yes, that's that's correct. That's correct. Could you could you tell us about that the dichotomy? I don't want to give away too much, but uh, Martha ha- had a view of her father, if you like, through. Uh, uh, 
Colin Glass, but uh, she loved him and she always felt that she, he, he loved her. Uh, at one stage she said, we had a secret, but I didn't think there was any secret. He loved me and I loved him. Whereas Mary uh, confided in the mother about even her uh, little little affairs, as she called them, in Dublin. But uh, as the teacher, uh, everything seems to go for her. But, of course, nothing does in life. We, we tend to make presumptions about people uh, that they have everything going for them. And, of course, they don't. And why don't they get on? Is it because they are jealous of, is Mary jealous of Martha's relationship with the father and vice versa, then Martha thinks her mother dislikes her and loves Mary? Yes, that, that, that triggers it. Uh, there was a very interesting discussion on your on the afternoon show on RT uh, just recently about sibling difference. Uh, that uh, we we kind of think that all brothers and all sisters are, uh, will be the same if their their parents are the same, but of course they don't. That, that that's not where life is, and. Uh, uh, Martha uh, really, uh, she brushes the, the the local shop, and she says it doesn't take a great brain to uh, stack shelves. Uh, whereas. Uh, Mary has really got a going. She's a fine teaching job in Dublin, comes home to mum, who loves the little tittle-tattle from the, the garden ballroom dances and, and those the, up in the Gresham. Now, I can see that, that why, you know, two actors would play these two warring sisters. Yes. But what was your thinking about, before we get on to this change now in the dynamic with two actors in it, what was your thinking about one actor playing these two warring sisters? Uh, people have asked me that, but I've never had any problem because you must remember I was dealing with Anna Manon, uh, who was formidable in every sense. And I felt that uh, she would... Uh, uh, bring a, a, a crusty, irascible Martha in the first uh, act. And in the second act, we presented the same actor, but a very different character in Mary. Very uh, uh, glides round the good room in the house as opposed to poor Martha stuck in the kitchen. Um, what can you tell us about their, as they grow up? They both have... Um an interaction with a very, a very handsome, dashing young man. Yeah. Well, I, I try to leave out as much as I can so that we But won't... give us a little bit to whet our appetites to get well, the cash registers ringing well, to get in. Well, <laughs> life, life is full of coincidences. I say it another word. Life falls into place whether you like it or not. And this character, it triggers all the... The dynamic of of the play, especially the final scenes, uh, and what the the relationship he has with uh, the, the people, I I'd be very circumspect because I don't want to spoil it. So uh, you were arts editor, as you said, of That's the correct. of the Irish Examiner. So how much of your life was an artistic life, writing creatively, and how much was journalism? Well, uh, journalism was 42 years with the Examiner as editor of the Echo, sub-editor of the Examiner, and then arts editor for 21 years uh, with the Examiner again. Uh, and uh, 
It was a tough life and uh, I wouldn't have done anything else and I know that now, but it's, it's easy with hindsight to say these things. Uh, uh, the arts uh, job was something I would have done for nothing if I could have afforded to do so. But uh, I fell into it uh, my health wasn't great and I was I think 85 and I had been editor of the evening paper for 10 years and I had quite enough of the desk and the arts I, the arts I love dealing with arts people they're so uh, aware of what you're trying to do even though it doesn't always succeed and they're very grateful people I suppose they've had to be that because they've suffered for so long with a kind of a, uh, all kind of a, I, I, I can't get the term but it, it, as if they uh, should be very grateful and really they're the most important people that we have in society. And when did you start writing creatively then? Uh, I, I wrote creatively uh, the, a memoir trilogy uh, in the uh, uh, just uh, nineteen ninety nine. Um, now I know you don't want to give away any more of the play, but tell us a little bit about this dynamic of these two actresses and how you've seen the how different is the play with two actresses. Like, do they? Ha- I mean, presumably Anna Manahan would have played it as two very distinct characters. Yes. But actually seeing two actresses, is has that transformed the play for you? Yes. Uh, uh, Pat Talbot has uh, a great uh, idea of what something that works on stage. He has a great sense of that. And uh, uh, when I, I was at the reading, the first reading, with a mock-up of the set, and I, I could see it happening. It was almost like a, a, not a new play, but a kind of a reimagining. And uh, I found it very exciting. Well, and are you going to, you'll be at opening night, I'm sure, Declan. <laughs> if they let me in. <laughs> well, my thanks to Declan Hassett. Sisters will be at the Cork Arts Theatre from Wednesday the 1st of March to Saturday the 11th of March. More information on corkartstheatre.com. Sebastian Barry's new novel, which is out this month, is called Old God's Time. The story revolves around a recently retired policeman, Tom Kettle, who has settled into a quiet life in his new home by the sea. His life is slowed down and barely seeing a soul. His time is filled with memories of his wife and family. That is, until two former colleagues turn up at his door with questions about a decade-old case, one that Tom never quite came to terms with. The past is something very comfortable for Sebastian Barry, having excavated his own family history for some of his great characters, Willie Dunn in A Long, Long Way, Roseanne McNulty in The Secret Scripture and Thomas McNulty in Days With without end among the stories he has covered. Well, Sean Rocks will be talking to Sebastian Barry in a public interview to mark the publication of Old God's Time on this Tuesday, February 21st at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary. It will be a live hour-long show with live music on the night from Derry Farrell, whose new album, The Wedding Above in Glencree, is released next week. If you would like to attend, please contact the Pavilion Theatre. That's Pavilion Theatre. Dot IE.
In the retro, futuristic world of Apple TV's Hello Tomorrow, the sets would not be out of place in Mad Men, sharp suits, nice hats and pastel-toned suburbia. But there is a twist in Hello Tomorrow. Pedestrians wear jetpacks, cars hover about without wheels and men's ties tie themselves automatically. The work settles on a team of uh, salesmen going door to door selling timeshare. But these homes are not in Miami, but on the moon. The sales team is led by a rather charismatic Jack Billings, played by Billy Crudup. Dave Hanratty has been watching Hello Tomorrow for us. There is an exclamation mark after Hello Tomorrow. I think that seems very important, Dave. I give a little pen sketch there of retro future world, but can you just put meat on the bone. Yeah, for sure. This is one of those projects that is quite clearly hearkening back to a very particular version of America that may or may not even have existed in the first place. I mean, you'll have seen this kind of shiny, you know, glossy, plastic, retro-futuristic, as you said, world in the likes of, say, films like Pleasantville and The Incredibles and Don't Worry Darling, which was out recently and it was a bit of a disaster, but the look was good and it's kind of playing in the same type of thing here. Then you've got TV shows like The Jetsons, video games like Fallout 4. So... So yeah, the Jetsons was a, a cartoon where people went off with 1950s hairdos, but mm-hmm. they had a spaceship. Yeah, so it's kind of like, I guess it's playing to conventional sitcom tropes and the things we expect. And Billy Crudup, who leads this show, is the kind of the salesman. He's a combination of Don Draper from Mad Men and Willie Loman from Death of a Salesman. And the very first time we meet him, he meets a guy at a diner. This guy's clearly down on his look. It's a sequence that recalls the great film Glengarry Glen Ross, which, of course, is based on the David Mammoth play. And there's a moment in that film where Al Pacino kind of shows his true colours halfway through where he sells Jonathan Price, who's this kind of hapless guy, sells him this worthless land and does it in a very cool, slick way. Billy Crudup is doing the same thing here in the opening scene. And I really enjoyed that opening scene. And I thought, OK, we're going to get this really sharp, dark, satirical thing, maybe in the vein of Severance, which is also an Apple TV Plus produced show. But I thought the more this, this went on, it kind of clung to its gloss and there wasn't as much beneath the surface as I wanted there to be. Okay, so we th- that first scene is a long scene, so we don't have a clip of that. But in this clip here, Billy Crudup uh, plays Jack Billings and he's giving a presentation about the moon timeshare to a room full of smiling faces. Afterwards, he speaks to his sales team, her porter, Eddie Sharples and Shirley Stedman. No one here is not a dreamer, am I right? Not in a world like this, where you can have it all. And that's what I want for you and your families. You wake up to the earth rise. Out your bedroom window, your wife out on her lunar garden, your boy shagging flies on the zero-G diamond. That's the dream you all deserve. I mean, come on. Why should the rich and the famous get our moon all to themselves? No, sir. The bright side, that's a place for real people. To start fresh, unwind, retire. Not to mention, you own an asset your kids will be grateful for. So please, take a minute, just a minute, and sit down with our top-notch sales associates and start living your brighter tomorrow today. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Warm room, Jack. Nice work. I'm cramping from all the closing shakes in here. And I think I may have enjoyed your speech the most of anyone. Good. Okay, Ed, you take the new parents up front. Remind them, life is still fun sometimes. Oh, easy money. God, how babies adore me. Herb, you take Granny and Gramps. Golf, golf, and no taxes. Got it, got it, got it. No excuses for not cleaning up in here. 
I can close in here with multiple seeping cold sores, okay? And I'm going to have an excellent sales performance. Yeah, I think I just said that. Hey, guys, remember, we're not just selling. We're changing lives. So Billy Crow up there talking to his sales team. He's playing Jack Billings. So it, it, does it kind of give it away too early? Like that seems a very cynical chat to the sales team. Do, I, yeah. do we, do, are we questioning him from the off that he's not a very authentic salesman? I think so. I mean, it's clear that he's selling a lie. The question is, how big is the lie? What is his investment in this? Does he actually believe? Because, I mean, there, you referenced it already. It's about, you know, kind of these properties on the moon and people can sign up for them and then they got to wait. And, you know, why are they waiting? Yes, that's key, isn't it? Y- yeah. y- you think that they're going to buy the timeshare on the moon and they'll be going on a spaceship. But there's this uh, lacuna of time that they have to wade through. And I guess the great question is, is this complete falsification. Is there anything to this whatsoever? And that's kind of one of the central mysteries that the show kind of plays with as it goes along. You hear him there with his sales team and he recalls, you know, that episode of The Simpsons with the monorail. He sounds like Lyle Langley from that. And I think Crudup is really good at being this character, but it does show its cards very early. I think you're correct in that because, you know, you come away from it wondering just how dark is this guy? Is he a villain? Is he calculating? Is he just plain evil? As it turns out, nah, he's just got some issues. He's, you know, he's got regrets and he will try his best to atone for them. Again, I really enjoyed the performance. Billy Crudup is an actor who will be well known to people who've seen The Morning Show in recent years, which is another Apple production. He won an Emmy Award for supporting in that one. And he's been around for a long time. He's in stuff like Almost Famous. He's a very... He was in Jackie, wasn't he? He was the, the, yes. the journalist in Jackie. Yeah, and like I think he's a good presence. He's a very good looking guy. He's got matinee idol looks and he, he was never quite A-list. So this is him leading a show. And the question is, can he carry it? And I think the answer is yes. But my big issue with the show is He's right there. I'm invested in what he's doing. I'm interested to know more about him. But we spend just as much time with his sales team and with other peripheral characters. And these are only half an hour long episodes as well. So they, they cram in a lot. And in my opinion, they cram in too much. Yes. So tell us a bit about the sales team. There seems to be a couple. Yeah, you got Hank Azaria, who's uh, voiced characters in The Simpsons for years and pops up every now and then and stuff. He's this kind of, you heard him in the clip there, he's a gambling addict and he's in debt. He's having an affair with Shirley, who's this headstrong kind of, I guess, more admin character within the team. You've got a young upstart uh, salesman who wants to outdo everybody else. And then you have this new character called Joey, who's this wide-eyed kid who buys a timeshare, but quickly Billy Crudup can't let him do it. Because why? And again, I'm not spoiling too much here because it's revealed pretty quickly Yes, there's well, a relationship there. We'll okay, well, let's play the clip and then we can you, you can decide how much of the relationship you want to tell. Uh, so this is uh, uh, again uh, Billy Crowder playing Jack Billings, uh, played by Nicholas Porday. He bumps into Jack Billings, which is Billy Crudup, in a palliative hospital where Joey's mother is lying in her room. Joey heard Jack's presentation earlier in the day and has just bought a timeshare on the moon. But there's a problem. Mr. Billings? Mr. Billings! Hey, morning, kid. Sorry, I can't chat. Hey, I, I hate to trouble you, but I, I think there's been a mix-up with my application. See, I, I got this this morning from the moon. I guess I must have gotten rejected or something. Ah, oh, God. These, it's the damn finance guys. They're not even half human. Yeah, well, do you think I could talk to them maybe? Because they gave me back too much money. Oh, don't waste your breath. You're going to find a great way to use it, okay? Right, but I don't want it back. Right, I got nothing from you down here. Okay, 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 okay. Uh, uh, your problems will be waiting for you up there too. You don't know that. I do, better than anyone. I like to see my customers happy, not playing themselves for a fool, okay? So you canceled my sale then, huh? You know, you, 
You talked a big game about me grabbing hold of my life, but then you know my life better than me, right? You're full of shit, mister. So that's Joey, and uh, he's been sold the timeshare by Jack, but Jack has now cancelled it because this is the other story. This is the parallel story in Hello Tomorrow. This is Billy Crudup's family, Mm -hmm. who he has really Mm -hmm. abandoned. Yeah, this is the personal investment. And again, like all of this is revealed quite quickly, so I don't think they're overstepping the mark here. It turns out he has an estranged son who is Joey. Joey doesn't know that that's his dad, and he sees this as an opportunity to be the father figure he never was for him, bring him onto the sales team. The kid is enamoured by him, again, not knowing that this is his father, which is a really interesting conflict. I mean, with that, you're like, there's so much you can do with that. And I was ready to kind of go to the races with this and be like, this is going to be really, really, you know, dynamic and dramatic. And it's just a bit surface level. Uh, The more it went on, I didn't really connect to their relationship. Because again, you're looking at this Billy Crudup character. The whole point is he seems pristine. He seems perfect. And of course he is not. His personal life is a mess. And there's so much to do there. But I think the show just quite can't decide on its tone. This is a dramedy. It's a comedy drama. Drama is kind of more the main focus. The comedy almost invades proceedings at times and comes across almost quite forced. And with these two characters, I really thought that there was so much more road to go down. I do think that in the back half of the season, this is a 10 episode season, I should say. The first three episodes are coming out tomorrow and I've seen the whole season. So not, no spoilers, but I will say it does spin its wheels for quite a while. Towards the end of it, I felt that they were kind of making those connections that I wanted early on. So I think you have to have patience to buy into this relationship. The acting is pretty good, particularly from Billy Crudup. But it's a bit familiar, despite the retro future setting that we're in. Now, timeshares on the moon. How, how can you live on the moon? Uh, great question. One that we should get Billy Crudup in to explain because it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all a lie, right? I mean, like we know that. I mean, that, that, that that's what this is. It's, it's it, anytime you have a show like this, again, to go back to Mad Men, like it's about people trying to sell to the desperate and these people are themselves desperate. So the whole idea is we will convince you about this great grand thing. We have incredible video presentations to go and it, eventually people kind of start becoming suspicious. Is this real? Right. So, so you live in a crater, under a dome. A hermetically sealed dome, yeah. So, And again, it looks like this Americana. It looks like this kind of 1950s nostalgia, these kind of houses. And the whole idea is this will give you the life that you never had. And you'll be in this community full of people who feel the same way, all these dreamers that we can sell this to. And people do buy into the idea. And that's the whole idea is that you invest not just your money, but your emotions. And that's what these people prey upon. Which again, I think for dramatic heft, there's hooks there. There's intrigue there. But the more it went on, the show just got bogged down in repetition. Can, can I ask a very stupid question about retro future? Are they in the 1950s or does it just look like the 1950s? Because they have the jetpacks and all of that. So why are we, why do they dress like people from the 1950s? Yeah, the very first scene in that diner that I referred to, there is a robot behind the counter. And there are robots, there are jetpacks, there are these self-driving cars. And the show, in my opinion, doesn't do a great job of explaining that. It plops you into this world and expect you to kind of run with it. So it's it, it, it feels like it's withholding that kind of level of information. Like, I think you're meant to be a bit disorientated. And the storytelling at times gets a bit convoluted in that regard. There isn't a clear-cut answer to that one. It is very clearly 50s America. And it's playing with all these kind of ideas of the future at the same time, but in this nostalgic sense. And you think Armstrong has been to the moon no (laughs) (laughs) and kind of said it's pretty hard to breathe up there what a question Um, (laughs) we're going to get into conspiracy theories and such I mean it's I don't think the show is interested in asking those grander questions though I think it's more about putting these people in familiar kind of quarrels and that I think is a missed opportunity amongst the show I think the show 
presents you this really grand idea and then just it's like well that's it that'll do right we'll, we'll, we'll just spin our wheels now and we'll have these familiar conflicts and then we won't quite take off so to speak okay well dave hanratty thank you very much people can make up their own minds hello tomorrow is on apple tv now tomorrow night is album night and we have new um albums from pink and from belfast punk band the new pagans but this is inhaler That's Love Will Get You There from Cuts and Bruises, Inhaler's new album that we'll be reviewing tomorrow night in our album slot. That's it for tonight's show. The programme was researched by Liam Murphy and Amandine Passo-Devine. Harry Buckless was on sound. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Tonight's show was produced by Ola McGowan and John Creedon is next.